This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is G'day Equity Mates and welcome back to another episode as we follow our journey of learning to invest. Now, whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to really help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. While we are licensed, we are not aware of your personal circumstances. So any advice on this show is general advice. All information is for education and entertainment purposes only. With that said, my name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be here for this episode. Uh, I wasn't here for this interview, unfortunately, taking a... The trend continues. Taking a self-described, well-deserved break. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, um, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Alyssa DeMarco from... Uh, Magellan, and uh, we spoke about companies. Uh, it was it was an ESG focused interview, but specifically looking at companies that are driving real world change when it comes to the sustainable practices that they're implementing into their business operations. It's all well and good for some businesses to have their ESG reports, but is it actually making a difference? Yeah, I think this is a trend that we're seeing more and more in the ESG landscape, and one that I certainly think is a positive trend i think the the first iteration of esg was just about get rid of the bad stuff like just see no evil hear no evil speak no evil is that the same yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. um and that was great and that put esg on the map and we saw massive fund flows towards uh esg funds and i think now the second iteration and what we're starting to see is that investors are now demanding more of the companies that they're investing in and not just about divesting and wiping their hands of things, but actually using the capital that they're, they've got to drive change. Mm. And that's ultimately what we want to see companies doing. We want to see those with the means to invest in change and those with the ability to drive the agenda forward do that. Mm. <laughs> and so we, we get some uh, clear examples of companies that might actually surprise you from Alyssa. So Ren, without further ado, um, let's jump into it. Well, Alyssa, uh, welcome to Equity Mates. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thanks, Bryce. Great to be here. So uh, Alyssa is a portfolio manager and ESG analyst at Magellan, as we uh, discussed in the intro. And today we're going to be unpacking 
real world outcomes uh, from companies that might surprise us when it comes to what they're doing to drive change in in the world of uh, sustainable practices. Now, this is uh, an episode brought to you by Magellan, and thank you for the support of this episode. Um, it uh, centers around their core uh, series of um, of funds. There's the Core International, Core ESG Fund, and the Core Infrastructure Fund, designed to provide us with a diversified exposure to quality and uh, infrastructure investments. Now we'll p- unpack a little bit about that uh, in the second half of the episode. But Alyssa, uh, as I said off air, we always like to start with Biz Nerdle. Now you're the second expert to give this a crack and we did spring it on you. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be fine. So it is our, the Equity Mates daily company guessing game. You can play along at home, equitymates.com slash Biz Got the promo <laughs> in there. Now it is usually Ren versus expert. Ren is not here. So it's, uh, it's all on you, Alyssa. And uh, clue number one is I am the world's largest producer of cancer drugs drugs. Do I take a guess even if it, it could be wrong? It, yeah, absolutely, oh, okay. if you'd want to. Because right. <laughs> uh, if you get it wrong, I just give you next clue. Oh, love it. Okay. Um, let's go with Pfizer. Okay. Very close on the, on the right track. Clue number two, I'm one of the two largest companies in the UK by market cap. Oh, I should know this. This was at the time of writing. It could have changed. <laughs> it could have changed. I'll go to next clue. Clue number three is I developed a COVID-19 vaccine in partnership with the University of Oxford. So it wasn't Pfizer, but it was the... I feel like, I know we don't cover this company. Is it GSK? No. It is the other, it's the, uh, the other major vaccine we all had. Um, oh, Moderna. Uh, that is fair. They, they, that was another <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, I'm known for producing medicines for respiratory, gastrointestinal, cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. And my ticket is AZN. Oh, AstraZeneca. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I, sh- I, I should have known better. You can blame me for that. Don't I'll, worry, uh, it took me four guesses to get that m- one My healthcare well. analyst is going to get me in trouble for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have you here because um, the topic we're unpacking today, driving real world outcomes with companies that, that might surprise you, ESG's... Um, you know, a really hot topic in the community. And and when we discuss it, um, it is often quite grey. It's a grey area. Um, it's rapidly changing and companies are now doing more and more to, I guess, pitch themselves and present themselves as having a positive impact. In the past, it feels like, you know, it was how can we remove impact from our business, like just get rid of carbon impact. And now the expectation is that they're doing more. So let's kind of set the scene. How would you summarise the current ESG landscape? How have you seen it sort of shift over the last five years with um, with the companies that you're investing in? Yeah, it's been super interesting. I think it's definitely very complicated. Um, but I think the important thing when you step back is that there is a positive trend. Uh, so companies are increasingly acknowledging that um, ESG risks and opportunities exist. They are providing us with more data, more transparency. They're setting targets. They're linking it to remuneration. So these are all really positive steps, but it's still really complicated. There's mm. no consistency in how we're presented with information. So just imagine a world where company statements aren't regulated in how they need to be presenting information, how they're audited. We're still in that little bit of a grey area with ESG where there's that we don't get that consistency which as an investor can make things a little bit harder. Um, But we're moving in the right direction um, uh, with respect to that. And importantly, governments are increasingly on board with respect to changes to policy um, and driving that positive change that we really need to see. Mm. As a retail investor, how do we find more info on 
on ethical and sustainable practices, as you said, like it's really just the ESG reports that come to my mind. Mm, but mm. how do you know what's real? How do you know what's a bit of greenwashing? Yeah. There's so much information out there. And as I was mentioning, like because it's not evolved in a regulated fashion, uh, it can be a, li- a little bit challenging. Um, so first in annual reports, they should be talking about ESG risks, but that can potentially be a little bit higher level. It is best practice for a company to have a sustainability report. So this will have that real deep dive into, well, what is important for that particular company? They should be presenting data on a particular risk, um, setting those targets and then having progress against those targets um, over time. So that's a really good place to look. But importantly, as you did mention greenwashing, like it is, you should be cynical when you're looking at these reports. Like there's often consultants involved when they're writing them. They're hundreds of pages. Um, So you just have to always think back, well, what is material for this company and are they addressing that? Like don't get caught up. They've got often very emotive pictures and um, just talking about all of these nice things. But like you've got to just focus on what is material. Um, And then also look at how they're engaging with with the industry because that is often that investment in industry um, and and how they're making those changes, it's important. So that's what the companies do, but you should definitely be looking at industry bodies. Um, So we're most advanced on the climate side. I think that's just because we've been acknowledging climate as a risk for, for longer. So there's uh, groups like uh, Climate Action 100. So they're identifying the the highest emitting companies, they're scoring them, they're providing, they tell you what, what the risks are, what they're doing well. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, we have um, Be Slavery Free, I think it's called, um, and they're focused on the supply chain for, for coca um, farming. Yeah, right. Um, so they have a, an annual scorecard um, on chocolate. Um, so they're looking at chocolate manufacturers, um, basically looking at are they providing a living wage, um, how are they looking after living standards, um, is it traceable? So there's there's lots of different organisations out there where you can learn a little bit more about the company that you're interested in. How do some of Australia's biggest companies fare against others around the world when it comes to... I guess, how progressive they are with, with this stuff. Yeah, so I think Australia is still got... We're a little ways behind. Mm. Um, so Europe is the most progressive by far. Part of that is politically people are more socially minded, one could say, in Europe, and that has led to regulation driving change. Um, so you find that with fund managers, they need to... Ha- there's more reporting standards with respect to ESG. There's more regulation uh, with respect to uh, ESG. Um, so the European Commission, for example... Um, has brought out a regulation that will have, well, sorry, it's in draft, um, but it's bringing out a regulation with respect to the percentage of um, packaging that needs to be recycled content. So just think of how that flows down to all manufacturers and what they need to be doing. So that's just one example um, of of the EU and how they're really trying to, to, to drive that positive change. Yeah, right. Putting the fund manager hat on, I guess as retail investors as well, when you're you're looking at the, the ESG report that they put out and then you've also got the financials and the annual report sitting next to it, um, there's often a cost that comes with with uh, Im- implementing some, some sustainable practices. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about the balance between financials and ESG outcomes and, and how do you think about companies that sort of need to balance that short-term business operations, mm-hmm. we need to be profitable with that longer-term wish, we really need to get our A into G and and uh, have a positive impact. Yeah, no, that is uh, such a good question. It's something we, we at Magellan spend actually really like a lot of time thinking about. So when we're looking at ESG risks, we come at the lens of, well, why is uh, that particular ESG risk material to cash flows? And that's the way we've always looked at ESG risks and, and all business risks. 
I think that's the lens you have to, to come at. It allows you to then have that view on, well, is, are that, is that company making the right capital allocation decisions versus short-term versus long-term? Um, and we really saw that kind of play out in the recent years when these high-quality companies have been able to reprice which then means they continue to invest because they, they're not, their margin has come back a little bit, but it hasn't been crushed as some of those lower quality companies um, have. So I think Nestle is such a great example um, where they made a commitment, I think it's around two years ago, to invest about $3 billion US over five years. Um, and that is all in sustainability. So they're focused on the circular economy, um, they're focused on their supply chain. Um, and that's so important because you have that that example of that European Commission rule that's coming in where they need to be investing in in their packaging so that they can continue to sell uh, mm. in like their, their, their home their home ground uh, mm. which is in Switzerland and Europe mm. so it's you you no longer you can no longer sit on the sidelines and wait you really need to be investing uh, for the future but how like how would you look at that how do you know enough's enough or if it's too much like if they were to come out and say four or five billion as an investor you're like wow that's that's actually too much and yep. it's going to have a material impact on your business. How do you balance that? Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to answer and a big part of how we get a sense of, well, what's the right amount is one, understanding, well, how material is that risk? How much can it impact cash flows and how much they need to be investing? Mm. Now, obviously, you can't just put an, an exact number on what that would be, but a big way that we understand, well, are they doing the right thing is through engagement. So we're actively engaging with our portfolio companies and companies in our universe to really understand, well, how are they managing this risk? And it's not just ESG risk, it's how we'd look at all risks that these companies uh, are exposed to. And it's a bit of a how long's a piece of string because if you've got a new law coming in, for example, related to data privacy, like you have to be putting the money into it so that you're now compliant um, with, with data privacy laws. Mm. So it's, it's really hard to say what is the exact right amount, but it's really understanding, well, are they doing enough to be still maintaining that competitive advantage and why we like that company or should we be pushing them a little bit more to try and drive those outcomes that will enable them to continue to earn those um, attractive returns and mm. why we like them. And so when you talk about ESG, environmental, social governance, it feels like the weight is very much on the environmental side, even from government regulation at the moment. Is that true? Like when we're assessing ESG at the moment, the conversation is centred around environmental? I think at the moment we're getting a bit more of a push um, into the e-side um, and that's largely from from kind of Paris Agreement, which we, we're kind of I think probably 10 years into, yeah. into driving that now. But like Australia, we only signed up, I think it was last year. I'm going to get my, my yeah. news mixed up. Yeah. So environmental has definitely been a focus and I think a big part of that is how tangible it is and we feel um, those changes mm. in, in mm. climate and we've seen the bushfires in Australia and California. But it's not to say that the others aren't important and to be fair like governance is actually always been a focus with respect to shareholder rights like financial statements that we just like we were talking about like that is actually governance and that transparency to investor and those topics have been around for for, for decades mm. um, on the social side we have modern slavery act which we have in Australia, which then been legislated um, in the UK, in the US and other European countries. Um, and that's all to kind of drive that, that minimum um, living standards and expectations. Um, and they're putting that responsibility on companies because they're the ones that are engaging with the supply chain. So mm. we do have regulation that is kind of coming at all the different angles of E, S and G. Um, I think climate's the one that often just gets the most focus um, just because there's a lot that we as a consumer 
can be doing as well and companies also like they're needing to be investing but it does come down to the consumer making that change to use renewable for example to to use a a reusable bag like companies can can and the government can push you but we've got to change Mm. um to really drive that how on earth is Qantas going to get to don't haven't they said by 2050 or something they're going to be at zero zero emissions or something like that like how how on earth is that going to happen and, and play out. Yeah, so this is the really interesting thing with the climate targets. So for most, so for some companies, like a financial services company, we could confidently say by 2050 will be net zero. But for a company mm. like Qantas, they have visibility over the next five to 10 years. But what's important is that investment that we were talking about where they've got to now be investing themselves with mm. industry groups uh, on new technology that has those biofuels that might have electric to then be able to get to 20 net zero by 2050. At the moment, we don't have the technology for Qantas to, to be able to be net zero by 2050, but it's that invest that investment um, with the industry to try and drive the change, to invent, to, to work with the engine manufacturers um, to try and drive, drive the change that we need to see. In your eyes, is buying carbon credits to offset a cop-out? <laughs> uh, look- Like what if that was their route- if, if they can't get the biofuels because it's too expensive, because I think, isn't it, there's just one type of biofuel that can get planes in the air from that, f- like, biodynamic fats or some something? I can't yeah, remember what it's we're called. St- there's still a lot of investment, like, that, that could get us there. It could be hydrogen, it could be electricity, yeah, it could yeah. be biofuels. Um, look, offsets are a really good alternative, but they're meant to be the, the last resort. Mm. Like, when you're saying you're net zero, it's your, you need to be reducing your emissions and then you're offsetting what you can't. Now, we, there will be things that we cannot that we cannot offset we cannot get rid of then we need the offsets but i think the important thing is is investing in offsets that are actually additive and that's what the an offset's meant to be it's it's meant to be something that is new and additional versus just buying um, a forest, for example, yeah. it's actually planting yeah, new yeah, trees, yeah. right so it, i think we've got to get a lot more um into the weeds as to what the offsets are and actually challenging companies on on how they're using them. Yeah. I think as a – because we've spoken about offsets a lot at the moment and even like investing in carbon credits themselves and the carbon market, but uh, it's something that I'm certainly aware of when looking at how companies are offsetting Mm -hmm. if it is just, oh, we've offset buying a whole bunch of junk carbon credits from Eastern Europe somewhere. (laughs) No, no, it's – I think that the world is being a little bit patient now because it is quite new, but – Companies will be will be definitely be judged on the, the quality of the carbon credits that they that they will be using in time. Mm. You mentioned sort of like price to pay, and uh, I guess the trend now of companies needing to do more than just strip sort of environmental impact mm. from mm. the business, but actually contribute. Something that we often debate on the show is: will the th- the concept of ESG or the thematic of ESG? If you think about how investment funds are pitched to us. I mean, there's the ESG core that you guys have, there's ESG ETFs. Will that be a thing in 10 years time? Will ESG be a label or will we be at a point where it is just expectation that companies are doing the right thing and it won't be a a, a mark of differentiation? I think increasingly there'll be a stronger ESG criteria that comes as the, the base in terms of the price to play because ESG risks are business risks. So if you're not actually managing your risk adequately, then the 
likelihood of someone wanting to invest is, is going, to, going to be lower. So companies' price to pay is they're going to have to have a minimum um, expectation on ESG. But then there's many layers, as we see now, that you can have the impact funds, you can have funds that are, are trying to drive positive change. And that's part of what we're, we're trying to look at in um, the, the core ESG fund is where we're upweighting companies that have greater opportunities in ESG or lower ESG risk. But largely speaking, we have minimum ESG criteria for all of our funds. And why is that? Because it's the price to pay. Like we want to be ensuring that our companies managing their risk exposures, yeah, ESG right. or non-ESG. Now, Alyssa, we we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to be right back with some very clear examples of five stocks that are actually driving real world impact when it comes to sustainable practices. So stick around. We'll be right back on the other side of this. So I'm here with uh, Magellan Portfolio Manager and ESG Analyst Alyssa DeMarco and uh, we're discussing how companies are actually driving real world uh, outcome when it comes to ESG and sustainable practices. But before we get to some specific stock examples, obviously ESG covers a broad range, as we said, environmental, social, governance, however you want to really define it. And it feels like if the company is focusing on one aspect, they might not be doing so well or focusing on another aspect. And just before the break, you said the minimum uh, expectation will likely only get higher. Mm. How, how do you decide as an investor where you weight your E, your S or your G and what is important for your companies that you're investing in? Yeah, yeah no, that's um, such an important thing to, to focus on. As we mentioned, like you can have a sustainability report and they can bring up all the different types of risks, but it's important for us investors to just to focus on what is material. And that's not an easy thing to, to necessarily do because there's over 30 ESG uh, risk categories that, mm. that are out there. Um, but the way to understand it is to really just get to know your company, get to know your industry to really know well, what is material for for my company. Um, so we've mentioned data privacy and like you just think through the different industries and sub-industries. So for a bank, super important. They have got pretty much all of your details. They know your your financial history and um, your current financial health. Like you don't want anyone getting to know that information. So they need to invest a lot of money. Then you've got Pepsi, uh, like company that will need to invest in data privacy. It's got employees. It's got its own IP that it wants to protect. But when you look at like how much the company should be looking at either of those risks, like you'd expect the bank to be talking a lot more mm, about data mm. privacy. Um, and so it's just really thinking about, well, what is going to impact cash flows for my company? Um, there's a group called SASB. So they're... Um, I'm not going to, it's an acronym soup and I'm going to get it wrong. But anyway, <laughs> look up SASB, it'll come up on the internet. Um, and they've got a thing called the materiality map. And so here um, they get industries and sub-industries and they identify for um, those industries or what they view to be material. And it's just a nice starting point really so that you can kind of think of, well, is my company talking about a risk that a reputable board is saying should be important for this industry? Yeah, right. So if ComBank comes out and starts talking about they're going to only be focusing on carbon footprint, you're kind of like you're missing the mark here yeah. with what's actually going to impact your business going forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, this is a discussion that kind of centres around the Magellan Core uh, ESG fund, but it's one of three funds and the purpose of the three of them is to give access to quality and infrastructure, but then you label the ESG. So how do those funds differ and what is the process that you – 
overlay with the ESG that differs from the other two? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we have three funds within the core series. Um, and so what they're doing is taking Magellan's DNA, so that's our proprietary definitions on a quality company, so identifying those companies that can generate those sustainable, attractive returns into the future, um, and also our definition on infrastructure. So here we, we want that um, that regulated return is what we're really focused on. So we have our definitions of quality and of infrastructure, and that gives us our investable universe. And what we're doing here is taking the best of that universe um, to create the investments and the portfolios for the core series. Mm. Now, they're still active in that we are actively researching our universe, we're actively scoring our companies and deciding, well, what should be in our portfolios. Um, but they are using a rules-based portfolio construction pro um, process where we're picking 80 to 100 um, of those companies and that's the highest quality companies in the case of the international and the ESG um, portfolios. But um, how ESG is overlaid is slightly different for, for each of the funds. But So when we were picking those top companies, we are ranking them by quality and for the ESG fund, ESG is one of those factors. So right. if you're a company that has lower ESG risk, greater opportunity, you're upweighted uh, into that portfolio. Uh, in addition, there are ESG exclusions, for example, alcohol uh, and gaming as, as part of that. So our universe is slightly different. So when you say low ESG risk, you, you look at it from the point of view of what like they're managing ESG so, so that it's not going to be a long-term risk for them? Is that, what, is that what you mean? Not necessarily, no. So when we're determining quality, we are scoring companies on six factors, one of which is ESG. Yeah. Um, so we will rate them from, um, from low to high on what that ESG uh, risk is, but it's not just the risk itself, it's how it's being managed. Every company is exposed to ESG risks. Mm. Um, no company is perfect. They're all trying to drive change and going in the right direction. Mm. And we're really focused on that credibility of management and how they're able to, to manage the risk that they are exposed to. So the way the portfolio construction process works is that we're upweighting companies that either have a lower risk or higher ESG uh, opportunity and downweighting um, yep. the vice versa. So you, you'll still get in with ES, having exposure to, to an ESG risk, but we're focused on those companies that are either driving, trying to drive that positive change uh, or they're managing that, that, that risk um, better than peers, for example. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I think that's a great segue into stock-specific discussion and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this because it's all great to speak the theory and, and you know, you can invest in ETFs that give you exposure to ESG and funds as well, but really understanding how you think about it at a stock level is is where, um, you know, we can actually learn quite a lot. So the f we've got a, a number of stocks here from the portfolio, each driving change in a different way. So let's start with L'Oreal. How, I, I think firstly, who are they for those that have no idea yeah. and uh, how are they driving real-world outcomes. Yep. L'Oreal is the largest beauty company in the world. They're based uh, in France. So they're exposed to that uh, increased regulation from, from Europe. And that's part of, um, you can really see that it embodies L'Oreal as, as a brand. So um, it has, I think, thousands, um, it would be, um, mm. of different beauty brands, um, ranging from mass market up to prestige. Uh, and so with respect to L'Oreal and its ESG credentials, it has been investing um in packaging for decades. It's been investing in reducing the use of, of raw materials in its packaging. It's been investing in recycling. It's being it's investing in the, the sustainability of, of, of accessing its raw materials. And this is really important given that regulation of the European Commission that, that we've mentioned. And what's interesting with L'Oreal and how they bring it all together is that they have that 
luxury prestige um, mm. brands, which means they they get a great better margin. They can invest more uh, in packaging or the use of um, bio ingredients, which then will trickle down into their mass market over time. So they they have this really unique proposition where they can invest where people are willing to pay for it, um, and then it comes down trickles down into that that more mass market products that they have. Interesting. So you almost see that as a competitive advantage in a way against. Yeah against, well, I guess, competitors? Yeah, absolutely. And what's, I suppose, when we think about what we've, we've spoken about, it's, well, how are L'Oreal demonstrating to us that what they're doing is is genuine? And that's very much all about that transparency, um, disclosure of what they're up to, um, as well as those targets. Um, so I think a good example from last year is that they, I think it's, I think it was 58,000 tonnes of recycled content went into their packaging. Um, so that would be equivalent of, I think it was like a hundred, the weight of 175 million cans, right? So this is this is huge, and they get that scale because they're they're, they're the largest beauty mm. company in the world. Now that's only so they're targeting 100% of their product of their packaging to be uh, recycled content or, or bio based, so compostable. Now that's only 26% of their packaging at the moment that they're up to, and that was that 175 million tons. Oh, sorry, like that is wow, cans. That's like huge. so, the impact that they can have. Is, is pretty enormous. But again, that's the price to play. Mm. If the regulator's saying, well, you need to have res- this percentage of recycled content in your products, like they need to be making this investment so that they can continue to sell goods. Like that's what companies need to be doing. Otherwise, they're going to be cut out of a, of a huge opportunity and selling uh, into Europe. Yeah, you just can't, can't do business. No, no. And uh, fun fact, wasn't L'Oreal, the, they just purchased ASOP, didn't they? They did. Yeah. They did. Two point something billion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that's L'Oreal, that's in the packaging space. You mentioned Nestle. Uh, so where do they fit in terms of, you know, driving real-world outcomes? Yeah, so Nestle, like many of their peers uh, in those um, in the consumer goods space, mm. um, they've, they've been investing in packaging in their supply chains for quite some time. And I think one I, I wanted to really talk about because it's quite close to home is what we've seen with RedCycle. Yeah. I imagine a few people have heard of it, maybe some haven't. But um, so RedCycle was what um, these companies, so we've got Pepsi here, Mondelez, um, which is Cadbury's, Nestle, mm. plus combined with the supermarkets, yeah. right? They were trying to find a solution to soft plastic because soft plastic is very much used for our chips, for our chocolates, everything we love. We don't want to stop eating them, right? And that's what we they currently use in terms of the packaging. But kind of fun fact on recycling, it's all at the local level for the yeah. most um, – for, for, for most jurisdictions. Um, so for a company like Nestle who's trying to reduce uh, its footprint and have all their packaging recyclable, they need to work at the, the local level. And so one of the initiatives they did then was with, 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 was with RedCycle and it was too successful. Like, too successful. Yeah, well, it, it didn't was, it go out of business. Well, it did because they had they weren't expecting people to be bringing because it was a return to store model. Yeah, it wasn't putting it into your recycling bin. It was return to store, and they had years of backlog because it was more successful than they had forecast. Um, so they've had to stop it. Oh. yeah. So that's just like one example of like the companies are genuinely trying to drive change. 
that's just one initiative on soft plastic. In Europe, they actually can recycle soft plastic through the home um, in, some, in some areas. Um, and fun fact on Nestle, they're actually trialling a paper Kit Kat wrapper. All right. Yes. So nice. this is like they're, they're trialling many different things because trying to get the soft plastic at a jurisdictional level is going to be quite hard, right? Mm. So if you can use bio-based or, or paper, that's then recyclable and compostable um, and that will solve, solve your problem at a wider level. Yeah, because I was going to say it almost feels like you know, kill it at the source, which is stop putting chips in soft plastics. Mm. But so, so this is where it all comes back to that business model, right? Mm. So for these um, businesses to be profitable, there needs to be shelf life. And there's a reason mm. why they've, they've mm. gone to where they have because they can get six to 12 months, whatever it may be, of mm. freshness. Mm. So they, that's the, the investment they're making is really trialling, well, how can we use less packaging how can we use different packaging um, to continue to produce that product that their consumers like? Just thinking about investment opportunities, we had uh, Emma Henderson come in to chat about Chipotle mm. and, and mm. retail broadly and that led into a bit of packaging chat and bits yeah. and pieces. In, in terms of the fund, are you looking at like the picks and shovels of, of what's going on here? Because you're saying that, you know, a lot of the packaging is, is changing and these, these guys are, these companies are, are changing the actual packaging that they're using, but there's companies that make these packaging. Mm. Are those sorts of um, companies appearing in the portfolio as well from like a ESG point of view? Not as yet. So I think the, the, the challenging thing is is the way that Magellan is investing is we're focused on those sustainable competitive advantages. Mm. So they are lever- like packaging companies might in time develop that, that competitive advantage, but to date there's, there's not ones that we have uncovered that we, we would put into um, that high-quality bucket. But yeah. it's not to say that, um, that we won't. Uh, we continually turn over rocks to, to identify companies that will, that will meet our criteria. Um, but we can play that thematic through these large companies yeah. um, who are investing to then kind of give themselves that leg up. Um, and something we haven't talked about is the consumer. Like the consumer is increasingly aware of sustainability and making choices that would either due to packaging because mm. like if you've got two comparable products, well, I'll pick the one that might have a have a lower lower footprint mm. um, or they're, incre- they're interested in their supply chain and they're willing to pay more for that, which is then a greater return for the company. Mm. Yeah, supply chain and packaging seem to be two where it feels like consumers are putting their, their dollars. Uh, so we've spoken about packaging with L'Oreal and industry sort of led initiatives mm. with Pepsi, Mondelez, uh, Coles and Woolies. What about supply chain? An example you've got here is Lowe's. So what do they do and, and what's the example of driving change? Yeah, so Lowe's is um, one of the largest home improvement companies in the US. So think Bunnings, but yep. basically based in the US and they're essentially a duopoly uh, with a, another company called Home Depot. So Lowe's being one of the, the, the largest home improvements in, in the US, they have they divide their supply chain up into T1, 2, 3 suppliers um, and they have 10,000 T1 suppliers. So that's a huge reach that's coming from just one company based in the US. So what they are actively trying to do is work with their supply chain to ensure that they're operating ethically. So they have minimum standards for these T1 suppliers with respect to paying a living wage, with respect to um, minimum labour conditions um, and, and many other factors. So this is just one example of how a company that's selling over $90 billion worth of goods is actively working with their supply chain to make sure that there are minimum standards. They then audit these um, companies on a, on a sporadic basis and 
they're not perfect, mm. but they're working, they're increasingly working to, to work on higher risk geographies and trying to drive that change, which will then have that flow on impact because other companies will be using those suppliers. Mm. And it's, it's really interesting and just positive to see how companies are evolving mm. um, to try and drive that change and be more ethical. Massive task, but also massive impact to business because, you know, traditionally a lot of these companies go overseas for cheaper labour and, mm. you know, different sort of working conditions. But, um, I, you know, I can only imagine that as as time goes on and they need to ensure that there is a standard being met, it, it does become a bit more expensive. So totally understand what you're saying about assessing the, the impact on business operations. What are your thoughts on the recent news of, I think it was HelloFresh finding out that their supply chain had monkeys picking coconut milk? <laughs> <laughs> Ethical or not? <laughs> well, it's like... <laughs> not sure they'd be paying them. Maybe they paid them in coconuts. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think one of the suppliers they use for coconuts were using monkeys to pick <laughs> coconuts. And, and I think the efficiency of it like these monkeys were picking like hundreds a day relative to human but yeah we had the debate is that ethical (laughs) oh it's just a funny like supply chains are complex Mm, like you've mm. you've just got to think if you've got like hundreds of thousands of goods you've got ten thousand suppliers and it's just it's then that suppliers like where they source Mm. things from like Mm. this is such a complex web that Mm. um thankfully technology is allowing us to increasingly get better on that traceability Mm. to basically understand and make smarter choices yeah yeah i used to work at woolies and uh even their supply network is just uh, you know it's enormous Mm. and i can only imagine how complicated it can be it's also complicated to I guess, communicate that message as well yep. to us as consumers, you know, how, how far down the supply chain are they going mm. and, um, yeah, effectively communicating to mm. us what they've, what they've done. Yep. Uh, and so then finally, American Waterworks, yep. what do they do and what's, what impact are they driving? Yeah, so they are a large water utility in the US and essentially a big part of what they, well, what they do do is they, they lay the pipes that will allow clean water, wastewater to, to, to be transported. So the US is a little bit behind with respect to some of its uh, utilities infrastructure. Um, so they're all about upgrading infrastructure um, or their water, sorry, water infrastructure. Um, and what's really cool with what they're doing is it's part of that replacement cycle. In some cases, they're actually replacing wooden pipes and it's making sure that the pipes in general are of a standard that means that we're not getting the burst water pipes, we're not getting water seepage. And that's really important um, as we come into a world where water is becoming increasingly scarce mm. in some areas um, because I think the the stat is like every two minutes a water um, uh, main bursts, right? And wow. so then you've got the seepage on top of that. So I think every day it was like 9,000 swimming pools of water that gets wasted. So part of their investment is to basically reduce that water that's being wasted because water is quite precious. Um, we all, you all use it every day. It's essential for many businesses in their production. We like Everyone needs it. Um, and in a world with climate change where there's more uncertainty about the future of water, this is a, like protecting that asset's really important. Well, this is some great examples there. We had Nestle, L'Oreal, uh, Pepsi, Mondelez, Coles, Woolies, Lowe's and uh, American Waterworks all uh, actively driving change, but I'm sure there are plenty more examples. So if you're interested in in what uh, Alyssa and the Magellan guys are doing, uh, make sure you check out MagellanCoreSeries.com.au. 
to have a look at the low-cost global equity and infrastructure funds. As I said, there are three. Um, we've just been focusing on the core ESG fund today, but it was good to understand the the lens that you apply over this compared to to the other two because, as I said at the top, this ESG space is, is still quite blurry. It's complicated. Knowing where you stand as an investor and then actively making investment decisions is still quite tricky. Yep. So, you know, it's been great to... Uh, get some insight from how you approach it, Alyssa. So just uh, a reminder, MagellanCoreSeries.com.au for all information on their funds. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I know the Equity Mates community would have got a lot, of, a lot out of that. So thank you very much. Thanks, Bryce. Great being here. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.